We're continuing tonight our walk through the book of Psalms, and we've come this evening to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Well, there is much in this psalm that should sound familiar to us this evening. Uh, Familiar, of course, first of all, in that this psalm touches on a number of things that are found repeated all throughout the text of the Bible, right? So we read this psalm and we should find ourselves saying, Ah, yes, I've heard this truth before from Moses. And I've heard that one from Paul. And I've heard this from Isaiah and that from Jesus. This psalm says so many things that are familiar to us, that are key to our faith. But I also want to say to you that the words before us tonight should sound familiar also because the 96th psalm repeats several of the themes that we've seen just in the last couple of weeks and in the last few psalms, particularly I'm thinking about Psalms 92 through 95, which we've covered just in recent days. I wonder if you noticed Many of the same themes coming up again tonight in Psalm 96, of which we have dwelt in recent days. I don't want to dwell long on some of these matters that we've given time to already, but let me just highlight uh, to start off with some of the recurring themes that pop up here in this psalm. One of them is the theme of singing, right? Singing. Didn't we talk a good bit about this just a few days ago from Psalm 95 and also a little bit when we looked at Psalm 92? And here we have it again. Sing to the Lord, a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Three times. Sing, sing, sing. And then perhaps saying the same sort of thing, perhaps the same basic idea is in view down in verses 7 and 8 where we find the word ascribe repeated three times 
Also, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. In other words, tell the Lord how great he is. And one of the ways that we do that, of course, is singing. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. And I just urge you again tonight to do this to overcome any self-consciousness, any misgivings, any objections that you have, and to sing. Sing to the Lord when you come in this building. Sing to the Lord when you gather for family devotionals. Sing to the Lord in your prayer closet, in your shower, in your car, and so on. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord from the Psalms. Sing to the Lord from the classic hymns of the faith. Sing to the Lord a new song, verse 1. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. And then also we find repeated in this psalm the theme not only of singing but of holiness. Holiness. We saw this back in Psalm 93 in that vision of God's throne room. Do you remember it? We saw the king seated on his ancient throne, clothed with majesty, ruling over all of his realm, fulfilling all of his words, mightier than the crashing waves. And what did the psalmist say at the end of that psalm was the appropriate response to such a God? What is the appropriate deportment for those who are invited into that throne room? Holiness. Right? Psalm 93.5. Holiness befits your house. And we find the same teaching here in Psalm 96.9. Do we not worship the Lord in holy attire? Clothe yourself with holiness when you come before him and worship. Now, does this mean that we cannot come to God with all of our sin and expect to find help and hope and healing in the gospel? Of course That's not what it means. Of course we can do that. Of course we must do that. None of us is without sin, right? We must come to God with our sin, seeking his help. But having come to the Lord in the gospel, having washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, let us also seek his power to keep those robes clean. Let us strive not to continue dragging ourselves through the mire of sin. Let us worship the Lord in holy attire. And I just urge you tonight to think hard about that. Am I holy? Are my garments clean? And if not, what sins must I bring to the Lord and confess and repent of and ask his forgiveness so that they might be? Then thirdly, notice how this psalm repeats not only the themes of singing and holiness, but also the theme of reverence. Reverence. On Sunday, in Psalm 95, we were urged to worship and bow down, to kneel before the Lord, our Maker, to show in our very posture that we fear the Lord, that we submit to His rule, that we revere Him. And I think the same sorts of attitudes are probably in view here at the end of verse 9. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Tremble before Him. Now, it's true that God is our shepherd, God is our father, and so there is an intimacy, there is even a familiarity that we can and should have with our father, with our shepherd. And yet, he is seated on a throne, isn't he? He's also our maker. He's our king. He's the sovereign of the universe. And that means that, yes, we are intimate with him, yes, we are familiar with him, but we also bow down before him, don't we? 
and we tremble before him. Not for fear that he's going to beat us over the head, but we tremble simply because his presence is so awesome. His holiness is so bright, even when we ourselves have come before him in our own holy attire. And again, I just hope you have this sense when you come before the Lord. I hope you remember in the words of the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes that God is in heaven and you are on the earth. And I hope, therefore, you approach him with reverence and with awe and without even a hint of flippancy. Tremble before him all the earth. Singing, holiness, reverence, all of these are themes that are repeated in this psalm, and all of them fall, incidentally, under the how of our worship. How do we worship? With singing, with holiness, with reverence. But then the psalmist also repeats for us in this psalm some of the why of our worship. Why do we worship God? Well, again, let's just notice in this psalm a few things that we've seen in recent days. First, we worship the Lord because he is above all gods. He's above all gods. That's what we saw on Sunday, again, in Psalm 95, verse 3. The Lord is a great king, or great God, and a great king above all gods. And then we hear the same truth echoed tonight in verses 4 and 5, don't we? For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. All the gods of the peoples are idols. They're just blocks of stone. They're old cut down tree trunks touched up with some paint. But they can't actually do anything for people in any ultimate sense, can they? Or in our culture, they're just, as I said on Sunday, computer chips and glass, gigabytes of information. Or it's just a ball team. She's just a girl. It's just money. It's just idols. None of this stuff can meet our ultimate needs, can it? None of it can do what God can do. So we worship God, because he's the true God. He's above all gods. He is not like them. He is not false. He is not unable to come through. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Isn't that a great contrast there? All the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord did something. The Lord made the heavens. And there's another repeated theme here in this psalm. God, not only as above all gods, but God as creator. In Psalm 95, again, we were reminded, the sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And here we're reminded that the Lord made the heavens also. No other God has done that, but our God is creator. And we should worship him for it. We should bow down before him because of it. We should stand in awe of his handiwork. You should walk outside this evening and remind yourself just to look around for a minute before you get in your car and stand in awe at what God has made and even more so at the hands and the the mind and the heart that has made it. Worship the Lord because he is above all gods. Worship the Lord because he is creator. And then Psalm 96 also reminds us to worship the Lord Because of his majesty and his strength. Verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength 
and beauty are in his sanctuary. Worship the Lord because of his majesty and his strength. Those are the same two traits that were brought to our attention in Psalm 93, verse 1. We saw God, remember, in his throne room, and here's what the psalmist said. The Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength, majesty and strength. Indeed, so strong is the Lord, we saw in Psalm 93, that the world which he created is firmly established. It will not be moved. He upholds all things by the word of his power. The world is firmly established. It will not be moved. And Psalm 96 repeats this fact too, doesn't it? Verbatim in verse 10. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Our God is a powerful God. Everything that you see when you walk out again tonight, everything that you see not only was made by God, but it's still here because He's upholding it with His own words. He's a powerful God. And He's a beautiful God, a majestic God, a splendid God. And we should ascribe these things to Him in verses 7 and 8. We should praise Him for his majesty and his strength. And we should praise him, the psalm reminds us, also because he is the judge. Verse 10, the end of the verse, he will judge the peoples with equity. Or verse 13, he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Praise the Lord, worship the Lord, sing to the Lord, bow before the Lord because he is the righteous judge. And shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Shall he not unfailingly reward the righteous? And shall he not unfalteringly punish the wicked? He will, verse 13. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And again, this is something that we've dwelt on recently. Psalm 92 Verses 5 through 9, listen to them. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this, that when the wicked sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. Why? Because the Lord is judge. And not only is he judge of those who do iniquity, but he's also judge of the righteous. Verses 12 and following, the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Isn't that good to know? Isn't it good to know in the words of Psalm 96 that he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness? Isn't it good to know that God will make everything right in his perfect time? He will bless those who follow him. He will destroy those who rebel. He will take vengeance Psalm 94, on those who persecute his people. And we have seen more than once in recent psalms that we should praise him for it. So as I say, we hear several things from the psalmist that we've heard before. 
several themes that we've heard, in fact, in just the last few days and weeks. A handful of reasons why we should worship and a few ways how. Sing to the Lord, verse 1. Worship the Lord in holy attire, verse 9. Tremble before Him. Why? Because He is above all gods. Because He made the heavens, verse 5. And everything else. Because of His majesty. Because of His strength, verse 6. And because He will judge the peoples with equity, verse 10. All this is, in some ways, review. But then I also want you to see tonight that the psalmist does tell us some new things as well. He, he gives us some new teaching tonight on our worship of the living God. Now, it's not new in the grand scheme of the whole Bible, and it's not even new in the grand scheme of the whole book of Psalms, but new in the sense that we're going to see some facets of worship tonight that we've not come across in these last few Psalms, which we've been discussing in recent days And the first of those new items that I want you to see fits under the category of how. We've been thinking, especially in Psalms 95 and 96, about how we should worship. And tonight in verse 8, I want you to see that we're given another command, how. Namely, bring an offering and come into his courts. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Now, what does that mean? What kind of offering are we to bring to the Lord? Well, under the Old Testament system, there were all sorts of various offerings, weren't they, that were lined out in the pages of Scripture that the people should bring when they came into the temple. And many of them, not all of them, but many of them, you may remember, had to do with sin and with guilt. Lambs and rams and goats whose blood was shed in order to make atonement for sins the sins of the children of Israel. But praise God, the Lamb of God has come, right? To take away the sin of the world. Praise God for Jesus, who fulfilled in one sin offering for all time all that those lambs and goats represented. So that when we make application of Psalm 96.8, bring an offering and come into his courts, we no longer have to bring a sin offering. We no longer have to bring an animal. We no longer have to shed blood or the priest to do it for us. No, if we will simply trust the sin offering, then we can come into God's courts at any time on the strength of that one offering. And when we read, bring an offering, we praise God that he has done this for us. He has brought the offering. He has put his son on the cross. He has made atonement for our sins. But then does that mean that there's really not an application of verse 8 for us, that we should come before the Lord with, with nothing, with empty hands? Well, something like we said about holiness earlier, I think the answer is in some ways yes and in some ways no. We do come to the Lord empty-handed, when it comes to our need for forgiveness and cleansing and atonement, don't we? When we come to God confessing our sins and seeking his forgiveness and asking for his mercy, we come, as someone has said, bringing nothing to the transaction except for our sin. We bring nothing to this transaction of salvation except for our own sin. We don't come to God, do we, with any price in our hands. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And so when I come to God for mercy, when I come to him for forgiveness of my sin, in the words of the hymn writer Augustus Toplady, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring. And yet I have to say to you tonight as we consider Psalm 96 and verse 8 particularly, that having been forgiven, having come to God empty-handed and had your sins wiped away solely by the goodness of his grace, it is then appropriate to bring an offering and come into his courts. Not a sin offering and not an offering to somehow pay God back for the sin offering that he has made on your behalf, but an offering of, of thanks, an offering of gratitude out of love for your father, out of a desire to give him glory for what he has done, out of a desire to see his word go forth to others, God's people still do bring him offerings, don't they? Now, one of those offerings, Matthew Henry points out, is the sacrifice of praise that is commanded in Hebrews 13. We don't come to the temple with, with goats and rams, and we don't even come with some of the other things that they came with, various grains and so forth, but we do come with the sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13 tells us. The very sort of offering that we've been talking so much about in these last two psalms. The offering of song, the offering of reverence, the offering of our gathered worship. We come with the sacrifice of praise. And here's another good reason not to remain silent during the singing. And not to absent yourself from public worship. Because your worship is the sacrifice of praise that you should be giving to God. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, Hebrews 13, 15. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Now that word fruit gives us a helpful picture of our praise, doesn't it? It's been customary for God's people through the centuries for them to bring some of their first and their best fruit to the house of the Lord as an offering to him, right? So you have your your peach tree, your apple tree, and when the fruit comes in, you take the first baskets and you bring them to the Lord, right? And your praises, says the author of Hebrews, are like that fruit, the fruit of your lips, he calls your praises. Your praises are to be like one of those overflowing baskets of peaches that you set down at the Lord's feet week by week to say, this is what you deserve. This is what I bring to you. So make sure you bring them. Bring your praises to the Lord. And then speaking of produce, let's also say that that principle of bringing to the Lord the first fruits of your gainful employment still applies today in a literal sense too, it seems to me. Now I know that most of us aren't any more compensated by means of fruit and vegetables and livestock which we reap by the sweat of our brows, right? But if you do have a little garden, you keep some animals perhaps, it's a good thing to think about how can I take my first fruits and bring them to the Lord? But generally when we talk about giving the Lord our first fruits, we're talking about money in our culture, right? That's what we earn from the Lord. That is the fruit of our labors and I think that it's not inappropriate to have our monetary tithes and offerings in mind when we read Psalm 96.8. 
bring an offering and come into his courts. This is one of the offerings that we bring, isn't it? We bring the things that the Lord has given us through our labors, and we lay a portion of them back at his feet. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Now, I'm not saying this because our church budget is in any sort of straits. In fact, we're doing better than any year I can remember. So that's not why I'm talking about money. I'm talking about it because the text tells us to bring an offering when we come to God's house. Not because God is in any way needy, but because God is in every way worthy. That's why we give, isn't it? Not because God's work will never go on without us. No, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, does he not? He doesn't need our money, but he deserves our gifts. And when we give them, we get the great privilege of participating in his work, in building his kingdom. So, yes, let us come before the Lord with singing Let us worship him with reverence. Let us worship him in holiness. But let us also, verse 8, bring an offering. And let me remind you before we leave this point about the offering that the most important offering is ourselves. That's what Matthew Henry says on this verse. We must bring ourselves first of all. So simple and so right. We must bring ourselves first of all. The Apostle Paul spoke in this same way too, didn't he? Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Present your bodies to the Lord as your offering, Paul says. Lay your bodies on the altar, as it were, as your gift to the Lord. Now, John Stott, in his great commentary on Romans has written helpfully and beautifully it seems to me about what it means to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice and I just want to read you a couple snippets of what he says the first is this talking about presenting your bodies to the Lord he says no worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward abstract and mystical Now, let me just stop there before I go on and say that's very significant. No worship is pleasing to God, which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. Similarly, authentic Christian discipleship will include both the negative mortification of our body's misdeeds and the positive presentation of its members to God. End of quote. So presenting your bodies, making yourself the offering to the Lord, requires, says Stott, both a negative thing, putting away your sin, and a positive living for the Lord. Let me just ask you, are you putting away sin? Or is there anything you're doing with your body right now to make it an unholy sacrifice? If there is, put it away that you might be a holy offering to the Lord. But it's not all just putting away the bad things, but positively giving yourself to serve the Lord. And listen to what Stott now goes on to say about that. And here's where his words get lyrical. Quote, Christian sanctity shows itself in the deeds of the body 
So we are to offer the different parts of our bodies, not to sin as instruments of wickedness, but to God as instruments of righteousness, Romans 6, 13, 16, and 19. Then our feet will walk in his paths, our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel, our tongues will bring healing, our hands will lift up those who have fallen and perform many mundane tasks as well, like cooking and cleaning, typing and mending. Our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed. And our eyes will look humbly and patiently toward God. Just walking through the various parts of our bodies and saying, how can I use this part of my body, my feet, my arms, my hands, my ears, my eyes? How can I use my body? How can I present my body as an offering to you? All, I, all of these things, I think, should come to our minds as we think about bringing an offering to the Lord here in Psalm 96.8. Bring an offering of praise. Bring an offering of the first fruits of your labor. And bring the offering of yourself of your very life given over to the Lord. This is part of the how of worship. But then I want to spend a little bit of time tonight before we conclude thinking from Psalm 96 about the who of worship as well. And this is the other thing that we'll notice tonight that we haven't seen in the last few psalms. Who is it that should be singing to the Lord? Who should bow down and tremble before him? Well, as we've looked at the last few psalms, we've mostly been thinking in terms of God's own people, right? We who know him, we who belong to him through Christ, we who are the Israel of God, we are the ones, of course, who should bow his footstool. We are the ones who should sing to the Lord a new song. We should shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation and come before his presence with thanksgiving. But what's different in this psalm is that this psalm reminds us that we aren't the only ones who should be doing so. Did you notice that as we read through the psalm? Listen again to verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Or verse 9. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. All the earth. Now, it's interesting in verses 11 and 12 that we find the earth, literally, the earth itself, rejoicing in the Lord. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. God is so worthy of praise, in other words, that nature itself ought to clap its hands and sing to him for joy. And in a sense... Nature does that, doesn't it? The heavens are telling the glory of God, Psalm 19. Their majesty is a daily testimony of his majesty. And the same thing is true of hidden mountain lakes and white sandy beaches and fir trees laden down with snow and daylilies in full bloom and baby rabbits in the hedgerow. They all speak without words of the glory of their maker. And who knows, but that when Christ comes again, verse 13, to judge the world in righteousness and to remove the curse from the planet, who knows but that the trees and the oceans and the birds and the fields will rejoice and will show his glory all the more. 
So maybe this is partly what the psalmist had in mind when he said, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tremble before him all the earth. But I also want you to see that when the psalmist summons all the earth to worship the Lord, I want you to see that he has something else in mind too. When the psalmist calls upon all the earth to worship the Lord, he has in mind a kind of worship which it seems to me is even more significant than that which may be offered by the fields and the seas and the trees. A worship that is is given even, even more intelligently by those who are created in the image of the one whom they worship. Because did you notice how this psalm is filled with talk about the nations and the peoples? Did you notice the international flavor of Psalm 96 as we read through it this evening? Verse 3, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the peoples. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, peoples, plural, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, verse 10. So do you hear it? All this talk of the nations and the peoples should, I think, inform us when we consider what the psalmist means by sing to the Lord all the earth. All the earth is not just the fields and the trees and the waters that praise the Lord, but all the various groups of people on the earth who ought to do so as well. The Lord, through the psalmist, is announcing in this psalm his agenda for all the nations of the earth and for all the various people groups in those nations. And his agenda for the nations and for the peoples, his agenda for the whole earth is worship. Verse 1, sing to the Lord all the earth. Verse 9, tremble before him all the earth. That's what God wants. Worship. It was never meant to be confined to the people of Israel. And worship today is not meant to be confined to those places and people like ourselves who already know how to do it. The call of this psalm is that the circle of worship would continue to grow larger and larger. That the good news of God's salvation, having been dropped into the great sea of the world, would produce a ripple effect that would not abate until it takes in every tribe and tongue and people and nation and all the earth trembles. Sing to the Lord all the earth. But here's the kicker for us. If all the earth is going to sing, verse 1, If all the earth is going to tremble, verse 9. If the families of the peoples, verse 7, are going to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, then those of us who hear this psalm, those of us who already know the how and the why of worshiping the Lord, must, verse 3, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. We must, verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. We mustn't just say it here. We mustn't just tell of the Lord's wonderful deeds here. We must do so out among the peoples, out among the nations, he said. Now, I quoted these two verses, verse 3 and verse 10. I quoted them to you a few moments ago to demonstrate that this psalm is about the nations and the peoples coming to worship our God. 
But verses 3 and 10 don't actually describe the nations and the peoples worshiping, do they? Verses 3 and 10 describe people like us going out among the nations and telling them what God has done. Listen to the verses again. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the people. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Did you hear it? If all the earth is going to worship the Lord, then those who already know how to worship are going to have to tell them about the Lord. Those who already know how to worship are going to have to speak and to preach and to proclaim the Lord to them. John Piper has said famously, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist. We go out among the nations to tell people about Jesus because they're not worshiping Jesus. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And that's exactly what this psalm is about. God deserves to be worshipped among all the earth, and yet he's not yet, and so missions has to exist. We have to go out and tell. We have to go out and proclaim. And what do we proclaim when we go out among the nations and the peoples? Well, we proclaim, yes, verse 10, the Lord reigns. We proclaim, verse 3, that he has done wonderful deeds. But listen especially to what verse 2 says we should proclaim. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Now, part of that proclaiming may be part of that singing. You may be saying, sing to the Lord, and as part of your singing, make sure you're singing about the good tidings of his salvation. But, but we must proclaim this just in general, mustn't we? This is our calling, isn't it? To tell God's wonderful deeds, verse 3, the most wonderful of all being his salvation. In verse 2, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day, first of all, says the verse. Wherever it is your routine takes you, proclaim good tidings of his salvation. On the softball field, as was mentioned earlier, where you work, where you go to school, and so on. But also, proclaim good tidings of his salvation, I think by extension, when we do go out to the ends of the earth. We're going out to the ends of the earth, he says, to tell of God's wonderful deeds among all the peoples. And surely the most wonderful of his deeds that we can tell, the most wonderful thing we have to say, are the good tidings of his salvation, the good news of his son. That's the most important message we have to offer. The good tidings that God loves sinners in spite of themselves. The good tiding that God sent his only begotten son to live for them and to die for them and to love them, dying in their stead even for their sins and rising from the dead and, and granting forgiveness and hope and heaven and the right to become children of God, and a fresh start, and a new lease on life, and a clean slate, and a whole slew of his precious and magnificent promises to each and every person who believes in his name. That's good tidings, isn't it? That's good news. And this is the news that we proclaim from day to day. And these are the wonderful deeds that we are to tell among all the peoples. This is the good news that will make all the earth sing to the Lord and tremble before him. And so I urge you to proclaim it from day to day. 
Proclaim it to your children. Proclaim it in your workplace. Proclaim it to your neighbors. Proclaim it at the ball game. Proclaim it through your Facebook page and on and on and on. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. All of us must do that. And then I urge some of you to go out and tell of his glory among the nations as well. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples, among the Muslims in Afghanistan, among the Turks in Central Asia, among the secularists in Europe, among the natives in Greenland, and in all sorts of places in between. Go and tell the Lord's glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the peoples. And I urge all of us, verse 8, to bring an offering so that they can. What a glorious manifesto the psalmist has put down on paper here in Psalm 96. What a marvelous plan our Father has for the nations of this planet. Sing to the Lord all the earth. And what a great privilege and responsibility to be given. Voices in which to sing those praises, right? And good tidings to proclaim. Tidings which eventually will bring this great manifesto to its fulfillment. So, sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples.